listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Diasporas are having a growing impact the world over as globalisation surges ahead. In the 2021 census, people with Indian origin made up 3.1% of the Australian population. It's the fastest growing diaspora here. We also have a big Chinese diaspora in Australia. 1.4 million people here have their origins in China. Today, we're looking at a recent article by Andres Ortega in The Globalist that explores the increasing influence these groups are having around the world. Keith, first up, what does diaspora mean and why do we use that word to describe nationalities that have settled elsewhere? Yeah, so diaspora means that people are dispersed. They're leaving their own society. They're not necessarily refugees or asylum seekers, or they could be, but these are often people who just, well, I'm I'm an example of the English diaspora. True. I came here in 1973 to do a PhD and I've Mm -hmm. just stayed on. So I'm part of the British diaspora or the mm-hmm. English diaspora. Mm-hmm. So it simply means that people who move from one country to another, usually looking for economic opportunities. So it might include refugees and asylum seekers, but there's a broader pattern. The majority of people we accept into this country are not refugees. We take in about 14,000, 15,000. And yet when it comes to diaspora, we're talking about half a million so it's a really big number of people. Yeah. So f- separate them out from the refugee issue. So these are people who come to a particular country and then are there for economic advantages. John Kenneth Galbraith, um, who was an American economist, was asked, how can you guarantee economic growth? And he said, look, there is no one magic key. But something that he has found over the years, very interesting, is that whenever people move from one country to another they tend to work harder. They've got to prove to their folks back home that they made the right decision. Right. So they work harder. Mm -hmm. So he said the best way really, although it's not practical, is to have people moving around the world each generation. Okay. And then uh, giving them an incentive to work harder. And and it is interesting, the the, uh, author, Andre Ortega, makes the comment about the number of Indians working in California, yeah. in information technology. Information technology is IT. In California, it also stands for Indians and Taiwanese. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, 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 and the article, he, he identifies the head of Alphabet, the head of Microsoft, the head of IBM are all of Indian descent. Yeah. And, of course, so is the British Prime Minister. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> who could forget? Um, following on from that, I did mention India and China in the intro. Are these the countries with the biggest diasporas around the world? Yes, and I think the reason for that is that they've also got the biggest populations. Mm. And, of course, you know, we, we've discovered in the last couple of months that India has overtaken China in terms of its population. But China has also had an impact here in Australia in the sense of, um, you know, the gold mines, growing vegetables. Often you go to some cities and people will talk about the old Chinese gardens. You see that on the southern side of the River Swan in Perth, etc. But Indians were moved around by the British. The Indians were found to be very good at bookwork. And so 
the British moved them into East Africa and a lot of their other colonies, oh, South Africa, took them into other colonies and they were hardworking. So they, you, you find these Indians, well, in South Africa, of course, under apartheid, they were called Cape Colours. They're also, of course, in Africa, subject to all sorts of violence because quite often they are more wealthy than the local people. I'm thinking particularly of Idi Amin in Uganda, expelling around 71, 72, the Indian population. And they went to Britain where they made a marvellous asset for the British population. India, sorry, Indonesia has had anti-Chinese riots in the past because the Chinese, again, have been very influential mm. in the Indonesian economy. So they would have moved partly because of they were great maritime explorers, but also because of the encouragement of the Dutch colonisers. So they are the two big ones. Uh, let's talk about the Indian diaspora specifically. You touched on it a little bit there, but what's kind of the more recent history of Indian immigration, you know, around the world? So the Indians have been, well, they became independent, uh, what, 75 years ago. And they have been very important in terms of the work they've done. One well-known member of the diaspora was Mahatma Gandhi, mm. who was trained as a lawyer in England and then went to look after Indian interests in what is today the Republic of South Africa yeah. and was there for many years and then returned to India to lead the Nationalist Campaign for Independence. Mm -hmm. So these are people who are happy to, to move around. And, of course, we saw the impact of the Indian population when Prime Minister Modi visited us and received rock star treatment. I literally have that written down to mention to <laughs> right. you. Yeah, he was. He was treated like a rock star. Yeah. And on that, the article that we're discussing mentions the economic benefit that the Indian diaspora yeah. produces for India, even from Australia or other countries. How does that work? So it, it turns on a thing called remittances. It's not a new idea. In Australian novels in the 19th century, you'd quite often have a remittance man. Mm. So in other words, this is... Um, a member of the British middle class or upper class who'd made a bit of a nuisance of himself, perhaps got the, the maid into trouble or something like that. <laughs> so the family ship him off to the colonies where he doesn't work for a living but instead receives a monthly remittance mm -hmm. from the family back in England who is saying, we'll continue to pay you as long as you don't return back to England <laughs> and cause further problems. <laughs> so that, that was the notion of the remittance man. So it's part of the Australian literary tradition from the 19th century Remittances are vitally important for many of these poor countries. In the Philippines, where you get a number of Filipina women who go to work in the Middle East, get treated abominably, mm. they send the bulk of their money back home and they're actually called the heroines of the Philippines. Wow. A recognition of how much they're keeping the economy afloat. So we're talking about a huge sum of money that is being sent back home from these people who work in one country and then repatriate money back to help their remaining relatives, et cetera, mm. in the home country. So it's very important. Remittances, I think, are as important pretty well as foreign aid. Right. You know, we hear about Australia giving foreign aid, we're actually giving less as the years roll by. Mm. But $800 billion a year flow as remittances. That's a huge sum of money. Massive. So these are, well, as I say, they're the Filipinas who are working particularly in the Middle East, but uh, we, we hear of migrant workers in the Gulf, the people who are dying to produce the football stadia for the sporting events, et cetera, in, the, in that extreme heat. 
They're mainly from India. Well, again, sending remittances back home. I want to bring it back to Narendra Modi for a sec. I remember I was working at the time and I actually went out and met um, Parramatta's Lord Mayor. Harris Park's part of Parramatta. They renamed part of Harris Park Little India. It was huge. And, you know, the rock star reception he got from the diaspora here, what benefit does that bring India in terms of having that strong relationship with Indians the world over? There is a thing called Global India. This is a a strategy which they're working on. Just as part of its reaffirmation that it's now the rising superpower, so you know, we spend so much time talking about the United States versus China mm. in the same way we used to talk about the United States versus the Soviet Union. A lot of this century will be devoted to talking about India and China. Yeah. So they are both manoeuvring on the global scene. And, of course, the Indians are ex- exploiting the fact that with this global India brand that they are a democracy, they've got people who live in other countries, and those people contribute to local societies. So it's very much part of the rebranding of India as this emerging superpower, now the most populous country in the world, and playing a constructive role not only in India, but also with people living overseas. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda, and this week we're discussing diasporas and their growing influence. So we've talked about India. I want to speak about China now, if we can. The article talks about Beijing trying to control its diaspora. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so this is a very different sort of problem. I don't think the Indians are trying to control the students that they allow to study overseas. Remember, mm-hmm. well, here in Australia, for example, having overseas students study at our universities and colleges represents our third largest export industry. It's called the export of education. Mm. In the case of Victoria, it's the largest export industry that Victoria has. Wow. So we, we receive a lot of Indians and Chinese, but they operate differently. So the Indians, remember, are imbued with this notion of the civilizational reach of India. They want everybody to think well of India. The Chinese brand is very different because China is very concerned about its own students coming to Australia and picking up bad ideas about democracy, freedom of assembly, and that sort of thing. So there are all sorts of allegations from Clive Hamilton and other writers that the Chinese government closely monitors the behaviour of students and tries to control them, and that there have been stories, as articles pointed out, um, about controlling it a few weeks ago, two men were arrested on charges of having helped set up a secret police post in New York City mm. on behalf of the Chinese government. So they are clearly monitoring their own students. And it is interesting, I've got to say, because I used to teach on an Australian campus. I'm now with Boston. But I used to teach on an Australian campus. And we would have a number of Chinese students there. And I just had to be so careful what I said to the Chinese students, because I I wouldn't want them to go back home with anything that's going to cause them problems. And so you just had to be very careful what you said to them. In what way? Like, what were you worried about causing problems? One of the things that we looked at is just simply the map of the world. And we looked at the western part of China, Xinjiang, Mm. which is pretty well unmentionable. Right. Mainland China. I was talking about East Turkmenistan. Mm-hmm. Right, which you can't even use that phrase in China, it's Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be very careful when you're 
sort of describing to Chinese students matters relating directly to China. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. Would China consider stop its students from going overseas if it's so worried about the ideas that the students could pick up? At the moment, it's in a bind. It needs the education of its own people. And in a sense, you know, they've got the money, so let's go ahead and spend it. The Chinese have basically got the problem which Britain had after 1750 when it was first called the factory of the world. We now call China Mm -hmm. the factory of the world. And so you're selling so much overseas, you've got to find a way of getting the money back overseas, otherwise you'll end up sitting on a pile of money and the rest of the world is broke. So the Chinese are looking at ways of how they can pour money into overseas projects. The Belt and Road Initiative is the most well-known one. But having students going overseas is a way of spending some of the money and also educating the students. Now, the dilemma for the Chinese is that they might also learn ideas about political campaigning, you know, democracy, freedom of assembly. Yeah. And so come back and contaminate mm-hmm. the other students. That, that, that is the, the dilemma for the Chinese government, that they want the Chinese to go overseas, become fluent in English. For me, I, I find it fascinating that the old Soviet Union used to imbued, be imbued with this idea of a civilizational mission. It really was thinking it was creating new types of humans. Total failure, of course, but it was thinking that way. Yeah. Similarly, we've now got India, uh, global India, uh, Narendra Modi sort of talking about this new civilizational mission for India. The Chinese are not talking in those terms. When you go to China, you'll notice that you've got French fashion shops, you've got Italian, etc. They're not trying to export, at the moment, they're not trying to export a particular type of, of civilizational culture or anything like that. But they are concerned about the ideas that are brought back into the country from people going to study in the Western world and learning all sorts of things, including, unfortunately, things like nuclear weapons and, and that sort of thing, which is subject of separate controversies. Yeah. Does China have more to gain or lose from having a strong global diaspora? I think it has more to gain because it just spreads people out around the world, much like the British diaspora. Mm. You know, in World War II, Winston Churchill used to talk about the British nation dwelling around the world, yeah, calling on support for countries like the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. People rallied to support. It's interesting, in World War I, the West Australian city of Perth, on a per capita basis, had more casualties than any other British location in the world. Wow. So you, you get people imbued with a sense of loyalty mm. back towards the motherland. It's interesting that the two biggest diasporas belong to two of the biggest countries in the world, well, the two biggest population-wise. What does this say about those nations and their futures? I think it says a lot about how they've got to try to keep developing. I think the problem for China is now heading towards the Japanese dilemma. The Japanese have stopped having children in any large numbers, and China's risk is that it will grow old before it grows rich. Mm. And so you'll end up with a lot of older people and not enough young workers. So you've therefore got to make greater use of information technology. And so you need to be picking up more ideas from overseas. There is this huge battle underway at the moment, which is played out in the shadows between the United States and China, what's called the chip wars. Mm -hmm. The Chinese are good at assembling cheap IT, but the really sophisticated top end cannot be done in China. Yeah. So you do it on Taiwan and you do it with machinery imported from the Netherlands. 
And so that is the battle that's going on behind the scenes to mobilise information technology to help your own economic development, as well as, as I say, to bring ideas back. If you have a society in which you don't share ideas and which you just recycle all your old views, then the society goes into decline. Mm. So you really do need the input which members of the diaspora can bring back if they come back to live in the country or send information back to their relatives. I think it's important that we do have these diasporas. The problem is, as one famous American Chinese writer has pointed out, it leads to xenophobia and attacks on foreigners. Mm. And we saw that, of course, with the Brexit vote in 2016 in Great Britain, where Britain, by a small majority, voted to leave the European Union. And the bulk of the voters were older people. They wanted to stick with what they knew. They don't want any of these new ideas coming from foreigners. And that further evidence, I fear, of the decline of Britain. That's another topic, isn't it? it? (laughs) Before I let you go, Keith, the article finishes with a quote, how nations deal with diasporas is becoming a relevant part of the struggle for global power shares. What does that mean? It's simply that using your people overseas as a way of boosting your power and influence. Remember, we've got two types of power. You've got hard power which is military power, do as I say or I'll kill you. And you've got soft power, which is the power of ideas. And that's obviously what Modi is about with this notion of global India, Mm. uh, trying to show what India can achieve by being a multicultural, multiracial society. And so that is the battle that is going on. And it's also one that you've got to win, win over people so that we don't have the xenophobia, the hatred of foreigners that we see. Because you've got to keep bringing ideas into the country. Otherwise, the country will stagnate. That's the risk you run. So I'm very much in favour of the movement of peoples. And to a certain extent, we're going to have to come to terms with that anyway because completely separate from all this, you've got climate change. And you've got people who are losing their land anyway through going underwater or whatever. You know, if you look at Indonesia, for example, they're losing their capital city. Mm. It's going underwater. They've got to move it onto another island yeah. to try to find a dry place for it. God. You've got these, you do have real problems. Mm. And then alongside that, you've got the whole diaspora issue as well. These are topics that we don't consider enough. We just think of them in terms of immediate issues of racism, et cetera. But there are some really big topics that we have to start thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Keith, thank you for such an interesting and insightful conversation today. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.